Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife Sarah? And he said, There in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, I shall indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, Oh, yes, you did laugh. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Fran, for reading our lesson this morning, and Aaron for being with us. Uh, God has used you in a special way this morning, my friend, to bless us, and we have felt God's presence both in your music and in the music of your testimony as well. Uh, well, I always say that rainy days and Sundays always get me up, and today we're up, and we're excited to be in the presence of Christ and in the fellowship of the saints, and we welcome you. I don't know about you, but uh, college football in the state of Tennessee makes me look forward to basketball <laughs> and baseball, I think. Um, interesting times. If you're joining us today as a guest, we, you've caught us right in the middle of this series on Genesis called The Human Purpose. We're in the second section of Genesis. There are two sections, of course. The first section of Genesis is the primeval section, the primeval stories of the origin of humanity. It runs through chapters 1 through 11. The second section that we started last week has to do with the ancestral origins of Israel. 
And so last week we began with chapter 12, which was the call of Abraham in which, and this is so like God, in a context of barrenness, in a context of absolute human despair and hopelessness, God shows up. It's just like God. In a venue of despair and infertility, this old couple who is now unable to reinvent themselves or to invent a future, God shows up and promises Abram and Sarah, this ancient couple, a new land and a son, a child, an heir, by whom all nations would be blessed. The charge was simply this, go, go, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, and I will show you a land. And look at the stars of the heavens. As many stars as you see, I will give you descendants even more. And they went. Their obedience to God is the antidote to the rebellion in the garden in chapter 3. And we talked about the fact that good things come to those who go when God calls. But in the text this morning, friend, that you've read for us in chapter 18, there is a little different message there that sounds a bit paradoxical. In fact, it sounds like a contradiction to what I just said, because in chapter 18, the writer seems to say that good things come to those who wait. Which is it? Between chapters 12 and 18, if you know the book of Genesis, 25 years, a quarter of a century has passed, and this couple to whom God promised a son is still barren. They're still hopeless. In fact, they're wondering sometimes as we do if and when God is actually going to keep God's promise if and when God is going to fulfill what he said. And they're discovering what you may have discovered when you're in a wilderness season, that God's timing is not necessarily ours. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but God doesn't work on the same calendar that we do sometimes. God doesn't use the same Timex that I do. God's unfolding purpose in our lives, at least to some of us, can seem painstakingly slow. It was Phillips Brooks, a great preacher in a former generation who was known for his patience, who was found one day in his office by one of his associates pacing back and forth just in a panic. And the associate said to him, Dr. Brooks, what on earth is the matter? To which he replied, I'll tell you what the matter is. I'm in a hurry and God isn't. I remember the man who was praying one day to God, Lord, how long is a thousand years to you? And the Lord said, oh, about a minute. Lord, how much is a million dollars to you? Oh, about a penny, said the Lord. Lord, he said, would you give me a penny? And God said, yes, just a minute. <laughs> Good things come to those who wait, and wisdom knows the difference when to accelerate and when to pause. A decade or so after the promise in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah actually got kind of tired of waiting. And so what did they do? They took matters into their own hands. 
Sarah had a servant. You remember her name. She was of Egyptian lineage. Her name was Hagar. And Sarah suggested that Hagar become the surrogate mother, providing a son for Abram, which she did, and they named him Ishmael. You know what the name means, Ishmael? It means God listens. You remember the tension and contempt that ensued between Sarah and Hagar, and yet even in their impatience, God blesses this child and blesses his mother. I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who once said that impatience and hastiness are the psychic diseases of our age. Oh, I hate to wait, even on God. And yet God never forgets a promise. He's always on time. And as time goes on, the journey continues, and now we find in chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah camping out in a place called the Oaks of Mamre, which I suggested even sounds like assisted living. It's near Hebron, which modern day near the West Bank of Jerusalem. Abraham is now 99, Sarah is 90. They're well past their childbearing years. Sarah's biological clock has quit ticking. And then one afternoon, they have unexpected company a trinity of strangers. Three strangers show up in the heat of the day. Stop it there for a moment. That's really strange because pilgrims don't travel during the heat of the day in the Middle East, not in the middle of the afternoon, and so that gets your attention. Something special is happening. And in the heat of the day, this trinity of strangers shows up at Abraham's tent. Abraham is taking a little siesta, and the whole story takes a hopeful turn when Abraham looks up. You notice that? He's not looking down, he's looking up, and he sees these three men standing near him. Furthermore, you see a detail there where there's a sense of urgency. When he sees these three strangers, watch this, he runs to meet them, he hurries to Sarah, quickly, he says, make some bread, he runs to the herd, he says to the servant, hasten to prepare a calf. The man is in a hurry. What's the rush? If you know Hebrew culture, you know that hospitality is not simply a matter of etiquette. It's a matter of ethics. In fact, the way you treat a stranger in Jewish history, in the Jewish family, it's not just about good manners. It's about good morals. It's a part of the Judeo-Christian heritage. The way we respond to the alien, the way we treat the guest, the refugee, the outsider, is an indication of spiritual health and vitality. In fact, if you, if you look in the New Testament, so important is responding to the stranger that Jesus actually deified the stranger, made holy the stranger. You say, give me some scripture. I have some. In Matthew 25, in the end time story, that apocalyptic story of the shepherd who comes back and divides the sheep and goats, Jesus implies that perhaps, perhaps the basis of our eternal destination may hinge on my response to a stranger in need. I was hungry and you fed me. 
That stranger was me, says Jesus. When you do it unto the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you have done it unto me. That's why the urgency. Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's an urgent matter. Now, I know some of us feel a little different about it. Hospitality said someone is making your guest feel at home even when you wish they were. The Greek word for hospitality is philozenia. It's a compound word, philos, philia, means friend, xenos means stranger. Hospitality means befriending strangers. And when you do that, God shows up. <laughs> I had the privilege last Tuesday, as did several of our people, of going to Atlanta and meeting and hearing Cardinal Kurt Koch. Try saying that three times. Cardinal Kurt Koch is the president of the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity at the Vatican. He is traveling the world promoting friendship and dialogue between churches and cultures, between those who are faithful and those who are strangers to faith. He is one of the most gentle and humble souls who actually, we discovered, is a better listener than he is a talker. In fact, he said on Tuesday night at the lecture that hospitality begins, let's listen, with listening. Restored friendship, reaching the stranger, begins with listening. It reminded me of something Henry Nouwen once said, listening is a form of spiritual hospitality by which you invite strangers to become friends, to get to know their inner selves more fully and even dare to be silent with you. And that's what Abraham is doing. Abraham, at the flap of his tent in the heat of the day, welcomes a trinity of strangers. What does he do? He washes their feet. That sounds familiar. He feeds them, and he listens to what they have to say. That's interesting to me that they begin with a question to Abraham. The question is, where is your wife, Sarah? And this is another clue, because how do these strangers even know that Abraham is married? And furthermore, how do they know her name? One of them says something then that is completely bizarre. Verse 10, I will return to you in due season next year, and your wife will have a son. Now, at this point, we're given a little look behind the scenes. At this point, Sarah is eavesdropping behind the flap of the tent we know that because verse 12 says that when she heard the stranger make that birth announcement, she laughed. It says she laughed to herself, but she must have laughed loud enough for the strangers to hear. It's, it's not a funny ha-ha laugh. It's more of a weak laugh. Can you imagine at 90? It's more of a cynical snicker. Humor is often the result of something that is incompatible that is incongruent. That's what makes it funny. Sarah laughs because what is being said is absurd. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. 
A barren couple having a baby? It's laughable. And when you read the rest of Genesis in the Bible, it's interesting because there's a lot of incongruent stuff in this book. For example, a stuttering fugitive who is doing community service in Midian because of manslaughter is going to be called to deliver Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. That's ridiculous. A teenage shepherd boy with peach fuzz still on his face is going to slay the giant with a slingshot. That's absurd. A baby is going to be born in a shed seemingly out of wedlock who will be called the Messiah. That's laughable. A Nazarene cursed and dying on a tree is going to be raised up on the third day and ascend to the right hand of God? It's ludicrous. Is it any wonder then that Sarah laughs and then raises her own question, can a man and woman still have pleasure at this age? Can an old retired couple conceive and bear a child, reinvent a future? Now, that's a rhetorical question for those of you who don't know. A rhetorical question is not really a question at all. A rhetorical question is a statement that is disguised as a question. For example, when my wife says, as she did to me this morning, you're not really going to wear that tie, are you? That's not a question. That means you're not going to wear the tie. It's a statement. When we're coming home from from dinner and she says, you know we're out of milk, don't you? That's not a question. You know tomorrow's trash day, don't you? That's not a question. This is what we mean. We do it too when we say, do pigs fly? Or someone asks a question, is the Pope Catholic? Do birds fly? Does a bear? Well, you get the point. (laughs) The idea is clear. Sarah laughs because she's heard all this before. She heard it 25 years ago. From the Lord himself, she has wished for this moment all her life, but it's not happening. She laughs because she has lost hope, and now she's skeptical when it comes to matters of God. She is actually resistant to the promise. It's absurd. And this is so Hebrew what I'm getting ready to say. This is so Jewish. The Lord responds to Sarah's question with a question. Why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for God? That too is rhetorical. Some of you that are here this morning are enduring some pretty hard things. Somebody here today is struggling with an issue an addiction. Somebody's had a diagnosis and it's very troubling. It doesn't look good. Somebody has a broken heart. Somebody's suffering a wayward child. Somebody has lost hope. Somebody is hurting. Somebody is grieving. And it is a burden that is way too heavy for you to bear. You've come to the right place. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? 
In the fullness of time, that same question would be asked to an elderly woman married to a priest. Her name was Elizabeth, and she would bear a boy whose name was John. The same question would be raised with a teenage virgin in Nazareth one day. Is anything too wonderful for God? You know, it's fascinating to me that the disciples also pondered this question. But it wasn't around a birth narrative, it was around discipleship. In Mark chapter 10, there was a rich man who came to Jesus one day. We call him the rich young ruler. He had everything. He had it all. He had affluence. He had success. He had reputation. He performed for thousands. He even had religion. He was from Brentwood. He came to Jesus one day with life's most important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he asked. And Jesus pointed him to the, to the law, to the Torah. And this man proudly, pridefully said, done. I've kept all the rules since I was baptized and confirmed at Brentwood. And then Jesus threw him a knuckleball. There's one thing you lack, he said. I want you to go and divest yourself of all that you have and give it to those in need and then come on back and follow me. And the man turned and walked away. The disciples were beside themselves. I mean, they they could just see his pledge card crumbling before their eyes. And Jesus sensed their dismay. And then he said something completely incongruent. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, mind you, he didn't say it was impossible, but it's pretty tough on the camel. And the disciples were dumbfounded. Then who on earth can be saved, they said. This guy's the picture of piety and blessing. And Jesus said, for humans, that's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. There it is. Is anything too hard for God? You remember the six-year-old boy who was in first grade, and his teacher asked him one day, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I want to be possible. And the teacher said, what does that mean? And he said, well, every day, every morning, my mother says, you're impossible. (laughs) When I grow up, I want to be possible. And so do I. All things are possible, but watch this. Not all things are promised. Only that which corresponds with God's good purpose is possible. Did you know that in Gethsemane that Jesus also asked that question? He did. With great drops of blood, sweating like great drops of blood, thinking, anticipating, the next day at Calvary, he prayed, Father, everything is possible to you. Remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the next day, he got his answer. Apparently, everything is possible to God except for one thing, the removal of the cup. 
What God will not do is to circumvent the reality of the cross. There is no fast pass. There is no simple painless route for an heir of God. It always comes with a cross. Maybe that's why Dr. King said, unearned suffering is always redemptive. I remember one woman, her name was Barbara Jenkins, BJ. She spent her time writing letters, making calls, going to see juvenile offenders, teenagers who were in trouble with the law, night and day, seven days a week, BJ. She worried the authorities to death. And once she was asked by a friend, do you, do you actually enjoy doing that? And she said, no, not really. You get paid? You on salary? No, she said. Have your kids been in trouble with the law? No, my kids are fine. Then why do you keep doing it? If it's no fun and you can't make any money and none of your friends are doing it, to which she responded, because I have to. I have to. A world of barrenness is fulfilled only by divine purpose. And in shared suffering in the cross, we find our meaning. Someone said it like this, the Spirit of God transcends human ability and transforms human inability. What that means is this, God is in the business of making possible the impossible. And would you believe, sure enough, the next year, Sarah's laughing was drowned out by the coos and cries of a boy whose name means he laughs. <laughs> it's just like God. <laughs> and it happens in our waiting. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. Is anything too hard for God? You have to answer that question. And my prayer is the way that you answer it will be visible in you in ridiculous ways that makes the world laugh <laughs> to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.